For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to this latest on the Verge Major League Mailbag. This is Zach Spedden checking in here on the morning of Saturday, June 3rd to take a lot of good questions this week about the Orioles. Not only about some players on the current roster, but about possible trade deadline targets as well as a few other interesting things. I'm going to start with this question from Tony in our Patreon group, who wants to know, outside of Yenier Cano, which Oriole has been the biggest surprise at the two-month mark? Which Oriole will be the biggest surprise the next two months? The answer for the first part of that question, who has been the biggest surprise other than Yenier Cano over the first two months, for me is Danny Coulomb. Uh, for To be someone that the Orioles picked up for cast considerations, basically at the end of spring training, to then come in and be one of their most reliable relievers over the first two months of the season has been nothing sort of impressive. There were some things in Colomb's stat line over the course of his major league career that you could look at as kind of positive takeaways, but I don't know that anyone would have expected that we'd be here on June 3rd and that in 21 and two-thirds innings pits, Colomb would have struck out 31 batters and walked just five. He has been really impressive this year. And even if he regresses a little bit down the stretch, I still think that his contributions to this team will go down as being really valuable. Because if you go back in particular to the first few weeks of the season, where it looked like the bullpen was not going to settle in the way we had hoped it would, he was kind of the guy that was the glue. You could bring him in in a tight spot in the seventh or eighth inning, and he could get the job done and get the ball to Felix Batista. Uh, that was before Cano came up, and then since Cano has you know come up and basically taken over that eighth inning role, Cologne has still been one of the most valuable guys out of the Orioles bullpen. As for the next two months, um, there's a few options you could look at, but the guy that I kind of had my eye on is Ryan O'Hearn. I feel like the script is going to flip on O'Hearn soon, where a lot of fans it seems like assume that O'Hearn's someone who's just roster filler 
he'll be DFA'd when the first you know, big-name offensive prospect is promoted this season and you need to clear a 40-man roster spot. I don't really think that's the case. O'Hearn can be good for you in certain situations, which we saw on Friday night with his one-for-three performance against the Giants. That's a situation where you want a lefty bat in the lineup. You can go up against a tough right-handed pitcher like Logan Webb and get the job done. And that's exactly what O'Hearn did. So I don't see O'Hearn taking over as the everyday first base, one of the everyday D8s over the final months of the season. But I do believe that he can stick around and be a guy that in part-time play or in pinch hit opportunities is someone you're going to want to see the Orioles go to. We'll go to this question now from Kevin Brown, a member of our Patreon community. He wants to know, who's my favorite O's broadcast duo? And then am I anti-wave or pro-wave? I'll take the first part of that question. And my favorite broadcast booth that the Orioles put together is actually when Kevin Brown is in with Ben McDonald and Jim Palmer. Um, I'm always impressed by the fact that the three of them don't call games together that often over the course of a season, yet it feels like they're always locked in, never stepping on each other's toes. And you would think that having two pitchers in the booth would be a little redundant, but that's not the case at all with McDonald and Palmer. I think they complement each other really well as analysts, and I always really enjoy the games where you have both of them giving perspective on things. And then Brown is a good play-by-play guy. I do think the Orioles have a pretty talented slate of broadcasters for television and radio. But if I had to go with one booth in particular, I would take the three-person booth of Brown, McDonald, and Palmer. As for the Wave, when I'm at a game in Camden Yards and the Wave gets started, I stay in my seat. So I guess I am anti-Wave. A couple of things with the Wave, at least at Camden Yards. First of all, you've got this gap in the outfield where you got the batter's eye and then there's no upper deck in the right field so it just always looks weird to me when it starts to circle from behind home plate and it goes out to left field and then it gets to the bullpen and all of a sudden becomes really unimpressive until it gets down the foul line on the first base side and then it picks up again the other thing too is that the wave will get started by one person sitting there randomly who wants to start it they'll get five people in their section to do it and then maybe three people in the next section. And then it will just sort of uh, dissipate. So my personal thing with the wave is if you can get it to go around twice consistently, I will stand the third time because that's kind of hard to do. But most wave attempts really seem to fizzle out. Um, the wave doesn't really work in my mind unless you're in sort of a circular an enclosed ballpark, which obviously there's very few of those anymore now that you don't have multi-purpose MLB and NFL facilities around. But yeah, if you can get a good wave going in Cannon Yards, good for you. But I feel like it always looks off when it's on there and it generally dissipates quickly. Go to this question now from Ben, who uh, wants to talk about one of the Orioles' top prospects. Can we hype Jordan Westbrook today as a future Oriole as opposed to a trade chip? just for fun. And of course, Westberg is continuing his excellent start to the season down at AAA Norfolk, where he's currently posting a 142 WRC plus to go as a 607 slugging percentage, 379 on base percentage, and 15 home runs. Across the board, this is probably Westberg's best offensive season, 
The walk rate is down a little bit from where it has been in the past. This is actually the first season to this point where Westbrook has not had a walk rate of 10, 10% or so or higher. But the strikeouts are down a tick from where they were last year at AAA, 21.4% as opposed to 21.8%. Now, with that said, I don't feel like my opinion of Westbrook's future value as a player has changed based off of what he has done this year. I've always seen him as a guy who could be a solid major leaguer for a long time who, in his prime, could give you a 20-25 to home run season. I know that there have been a lot of doubts about that power being able to translate to Camden Yards because he has such a pool-centric approach as a right-handed hitter. Yeah, I do think he will be challenged a little bit at Camden Yards, but I think he could still at least give you good doubles power because he does hit the ball hard. Where some of the limitations do come in right now is where is he going to play defensively. Um, I think second base is probably going to be his best position if there's just one spot where you want to stick him. But it's also possible you could see him rotate out between third base and left field. So, yeah, it is fun to think about Westbrook possibly as a future Oriole. As for this year, if he was to be called up, the one thing that I would really caution a lot of fans who I think feel like Westbrook would come up and just dominate out of the gate is that there is some swing and miss to his game. And I could see him coming up and struggling with the strikeouts more than he has in AAA and not walking a whole lot. So that factor is there with Westbrook. But the numbers are solid, and I think that long-term he projects as not necessarily a multi-time all-star at the major league level, but a guy who can stick around for a long time and give you good offensive production, maybe average defense depending on where he settles up. He's going to be a good player. He's a legitimate prospect who's having an excellent year right now. And he'll have a good major league career, whether that's ultimately with the Orioles or if he is traded. And we're going to talk a lot about trade deadline possibilities and speculation in this episode. So this probably is not the last time I'm going to be bringing up Westberg. But if he doesn't move in a deadline deal, great. The Orioles have that option to go to him this season if they haven't already by then and see what he can do and see if he's worthy of a full-time spot in 2024. If they do trade him, they're probably going to get something of value back in return, and he'll go to an organization where he could probably be an everyday guy right away at the major league level. And with that, I actually will jump into the trade deadline portion of this episode and start with this question from Matt in our Patreon community. Two months until the trade deadline, which realistic move could you see the Orioles make for a pitcher and hitter? I think this is a good time to really check in on the state of the trade deadline because it's a perfect reminder of how fluid things are. Um, Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about maybe Eduardo Rodriguez being a guy that the Orioles could target. Well, Rodriguez is now on the IL with the Tigers with a ruptured A4 pulley in his finger. That injury uh, could put him down at least for six weeks, if not longer. So he no longer feels like a certain trade target especially because the Tigers actually are still kind of in the race in the AL Central. They're under 500, but they're only three and a half games behind Minnesota. So if they can stay afloat and get Rodriguez back, maybe they make a run for it, especially because they spent so much money before last season trying to push this team into contention, only to have it not work out. They were pretty bad last year. 
Corbin Burns with Milwaukee. Burns is not off to the best start this year, but the Brewers still leading the NL Central by a half game over Pittsburgh. My sense is the Brewers will hold on to Burns if they have a shot at the postseason, and they could win the NL Central, which is a pretty weak division this year, get into the playoffs, make another run for it with him, and then they'll move him in the offseason. I definitely think this is going to be his last year in Milwaukee. I'm just not convinced he's going to go at the deadline. So I'm going to pivot now over to Dylan Cease because Cease is a guy that I know a lot of Orioles fans want to see the team target. He's only 27, coming off an absolutely dominant 2022 season, and he's got a couple of years of team control remaining. So in a lot of respects, he really fits what the Orioles could be looking for, plus the White Sox, 11 games under 500, seven and a half out in the AL Central. They certainly look like sellers right now. Cease, though, has not been that good this year. Uh, if you look at his numbers across the board, he has an ERA of 4.88. His fastball velocity is down a little bit. He's getting hit harder this year. That pitch in particular has been hit much harder than it was last year. Percentile rankings, 6% in hard hit rate, 13th in average exit velocity. Expected batting average, 35th percent. Walk percentage, 27% percentile ranking. So... Cease, just across the board, is having some issues. There was an interesting article recently in The Athletic uh, by James Feagan talking about the mechanical issues that Lance Lynn and Dylan Cease are trying to work through right now. And Cease talked in that article about how his front shoulder has been opening too early, and that has been causing him problems. So that's something you probably want to see over the next couple of months if you're interested in, you know, having Cease come to Baltimore is can he figure that out before the trade deadline because where I view Cease right now is actually more a little bit more of a project for the Orioles where you're going to go out and get him basically to stabilize things for the last couple months of the season and then hope that you can fix him a little bit work on some things and unlock the best version of Dylan Cease that you can get over 2024 in 2025. But I don't know that I see him being the guy that Luis Castillo was to the Mariners last year where he went over to Seattle, was dominant, gave them an excellent start in the playoffs. I don't know that Cease is quite there this year. Nonetheless, I do think he's a realistic trade target. So that's one name I would keep my eye on on the pitching side. Offensively, um, I still go back to Ramon Laureano with Oakland. I think there's some things that Laureano does well, particularly on defense that could fit the Orioles, especially if Cedric Mullins is going to be out for a while and that left field defense becomes a little bit more important. Not to mention, Laureano could step in to center field from them for time to time. And then, of course, you you want to keep your eye on some of these teams that are really struggling to see what they have available. Now, admittedly, when when I look at these rosters up and down of the teams that I think are absolutely certain to sell at the deadline, teams like the White Sox, the Royals, the Rockies, who should be selling the A's. There's not a lot there that I'm impressed with, but things can change over the next two months. And there could be a team that right now that doesn't look like their sellers decide to move a few guys at the deadline. And that's where the Orioles could come in. We got a couple of questions about a specific pitcher, and that is Shane Bieber. At Caleb BTB20 underscore 14 on Twitter wants to know, should the O's trade for Shane Bieber after pummeling him in Camden Yards and his K numbers being down this year? Vivek, meanwhile, asked, after recently facing Shane Bieber, is he still a trade target for the Orioles 
or someone to avoid. What's the most you'd consider dealing for Bieber if you were a GM? Bieber has kind of been dropping on my list of trade targets for the Orioles for a while now, and that was true before his rough outing earlier this week against the Orioles. And the reason for that is because you're been seeing a decline in the quality of his stuff really over the last two years. And this year, this has manifested itself in significantly lower strikeout numbers than he has ever had at any point in his career. 6.4 strikeouts per nine innings so far through 75 frames, which is much lower than the 8.9 that he put up in 200 innings in 2022. And that's even lower than the 12.5 that he put up over 96 and two-thirds innings in 2021. So Bieber's strikeouts have been diminishing over the last couple of years. The walks, as I mentioned, are up from where they were last year. So far, he's leading the league in hits allowed, 76 hits and 75 innings pitched. So Bieber, I probably am going to avoid, especially because he only has a year of team control after this year. So whereas you could trade for Dylan Cease and have a couple of years to try to turn things around, Bieber, you have half of this season and then all of next year. Um, So I would almost rather take my chances on continuing to develop someone like Tyler Wells or Kyle Bradis to see if I can get better results out of them and have them around for the next few years than I would to dip into the farm system to trade Bieber. As for what I would give up to get him, the top for me would probably be looking at the Orioles system, someone in maybe that 8 to 12 range on a prospect list. Yeah, so speaking about this in terms of tiers, it's probably where guys like Dylan Beavers or Judd Fabian would land on most lists right now. That's probably where I'm going to top out. And my concern about that at the trade deadline is that it feels like if there's a time for the Guardians to ask too much and get too much for Bieber, it's going to be at the deadline when everybody is going for it and they're willing to trade for a pitcher, give up a premium to do so. Whereas in the offseason, you would have the full season in the rearview mirror to pick apart some of Bieber's flaws, know that you only have one year of team control left, and his return... Is probably lower at that point. So that's something that I would really consider is that if you're trading for him at the deadline, you're probably going to want to give, you're probably going to have to give up more than you really want to give up or really should give up. And I feel like there's probably going to be better pitchers available. I would rather have Cease over Bieber, even though I just kind of picked apart Cease a minute ago, because I feel more confident that you could get a better version of Dylan Cease over the next two and a half years than I am that you can get a better version of Shane Bieber over the next year and a half. We'll go to this question now from M- at M.M. Backner on Twitter. Um, you have one trade option, pitchers excluded. Your job is to acquire one position player, someone who goes right into the starting lineup. In this scenario, all current O's are healthy, including Cedric Mullins, and available. Assume that you are replacing a current starter. Who do you get? I just talked about Ramon Laureano as a position player that I would target at the deadline but I feel like with this question you're surf you're looking for a bigger splash so I started digging around and I came up with one that I think could be an interesting fit that's uh, Jonathan India now I know what you're thinking the Orioles are picking up another infielder they've already got a lot of infielders but let's step back for a minute and let's say that they do trade for a pitcher they're probably going to dip into that you know depth chart that they have right now 
of middle infielders to go get somebody. The Reds, meanwhile, also have a pretty strong pipeline of infielders. Matt McClain is in the major leagues now. Ellie De La Cruz just continues to break down at Louisville. We may see him this year. So India suddenly could become expendable. Do I think India is going to be traded? No, I don't. At least not this year because the Reds are only four out in the NL Central. As I mentioned, they've got some prospects there who are producing now and they have some guys coming. So they could be a really interesting team in the second half. But here's how I would handle an India trade if the Orioles were to go do it. I would go out and get him knowing that he's not going to be arbitration eligible for the first time until after this season. He's not a free agent until after 2026, and he's only 26 years old right now. So he's a guy that you could build around, or you could keep him up in the mid on your roster for the next year and a half, flip him when you have a couple of years of team control remaining, and clear a spot for Jackson Holiday in your infield. Um, the other thing, too, is that this would give you some flexibility with how to handle Adam Fraser. Fraser can take very good at-bats. I think overall that signing has worked out well for them. But you could start to move Fraser around a little bit, have him play some outfield corners, maybe only put him in certain days where the matchups are favorable to him, and India could hold down the second base position for you. So that's someone that if you want to look at a really, really dark horse, long-shot name to for the Orioles to acquire, that's someone I would focus on. Do I think it's going to happen? No, because like I said, I don't think the Reds are going to trade India this season. Maybe they will in the offseason, but they're not going to trade him this season as long as they have at least an outside shot at a playoff spot. And the Orioles probably don't need India unless they do have to give up a couple of infielders to get some pitching back. But if you just want to you know, throw something to the wall and see if it sticks, this is something that I would definitely consider as a possible trade. A very long shot trade, but a possible one. We'll shake things up now and have a little fun with this question from Ben in our Patreon community. Have you considered having an animated mailbox deliver these questions to you and sing a song like in Blue's Clues? Well, to start off, um, I would say that that would kind of be a waste of money right now, considering that we're only doing this on audio. We have not moved this over to our YouTube channel just yet. Maybe that will come later on. But Ben, first of all, thank you for plugging us on Twitter this week and directing, hopefully directing a few people over our Patreon community. That's very much appreciated. If you can do that and you can you know, bring in more patrons and we move this over to a video and audio feed in the future, then yeah, I would consider maybe a singing mailbox. Um, I'm not going to wear the C from Blue's Clues shirt, but I would consider maybe an orange mailbox that dances around and brings a question to us. So Something to put on the back burner as an idea for this show later on, but right now probably not in uh, on our radar as far as priorities that Bob and Nick and I have for the show. And by the way, if you haven't given Ben's account uh, on Twitter a follow yet, go ahead and do so now at Orioles Status One. That's the number one at the end of that uh, for some good Orioles commentary. So. Ben, uh, thank you for your plug for us earlier, and there is a return in favor for people to follow you on Twitter. Go down to some questions now about Ryan Mountcastle because this is a pretty interesting subject. At Birdland Army wants to know, is Ryan Mountcastle our first baseman of the future? Santiago in our Patreon community, meanwhile, asks, this one would hurt, but given the ballpark fitting lefties and the glut of prospects in the pipeline who could play first base, like Kobe May or Heston Kerstad, would you consider dealing Mountcastle for a starting pitcher 
assuming it's for a pitcher with at least one year of control. I'll start with Birdland Army's question first. Mountcastle is the Orioles' first baseman for the next year and a half. That's how I see things playing out. He will be given a year and a half to show that he can get better and that some of the underlying data that shows that he can hit the ball hard and hit the ball hard consistently is eventually going to start translating into better results. Now, the general profile of who Mountcastle is as a hitter, I think pretty much is what he's going to be throughout his career. He's going to hit for power. He's rarely, if ever, going to take a walk. In a good season, he might hit 260 or 265. The strikeouts are actually down a little bit for him this year, which has been a positive sign of development. Now, in the next couple of years, if you look at how Austin Hayes is performing this year, and we hope that that improvement sustains itself over the course of the season, maybe the Orioles view Mountcastle as the next guy that they can make better. Now, I don't think Mountcastle really fits the prototype that this regime uh, under Michael Elias has for hitters. And we got to remember Mountcastle was developed and largely was drafted and largely developed under Dan Duquette's regime. So, you know, not necessarily this regime's type of hitter, but maybe they can get a better results out of him over the next couple of years. And you got to remember, he's just 26 years old. He has three years of team control remaining beyond this season, and he's not arbitration eligible for the first time until after the 2023 campaign. So he's not going to cost you a whole lot, and there's still the potential for him to get better. Beyond 2024 is where I think it could get interesting for Mountcastle, because you will have a better sense of what you, you will have a better understanding of what you have in players like Heston Kerstad and Kobe Mayo. Both of them might be in the major leagues by then. And while I've said before that putting Mayo at first base long-term would be wasting his arm, that is still a position that he'll probably have to play to get consistent at bats. Kerstad, same thing. He's probably going to have to be able to play first base and right field to get consistent at bats, and it may turn out that in the long run, first base is the better position for him. So if Malcastle comes out in 2024 and has a big year, there could be an argument for trading him then because you can get some starting pitching back in return, and have someone you could turn to at first base right away. If he comes out and struggles in 2024, then you're trying to figure out, can you move him at all? And you're convinced at that point, maybe, that clearing that spot to have more at-bats for Kerstad and Mayo or whoever else factors into that conversation by then is the smart move. So I don't see Mountcastle going anywhere for the next year and a half, but... I wouldn't call him the first baseman in the future, and I definitely don't really see him as an extension candidate. Um, even if the numbers were better, I don't know that extending a guy that's going to be a first baseman for his whole career, and like I said, kind of has this profile where he's not going to walk very often, hit for a lot of power. I just don't know that Mike Elias and company are going to be interested in that, You know, committing five, six years to that in an extension, but I think for the remainder of his, you know, for at least the next couple of years, he is going to help the Orioles out and probably be part of their plans. Eventually, I would consider dealing him for a pitcher, but I wouldn't do it now because I do think he can give you better results than what he has over the course of this season, even compared to last year. And you could get a little bit more back for him. There's plenty of time to make a decision on that. Go to a couple of questions now that I think are related. My co-host Bob Phelan wants to know, and I'm sure this is Bob just joking around, why is the season over and who should be fired? 
And then David C. Uh, chimes in with this question. Who does Brandon Hyde think he is? This question actually came in a couple of days ago. That was before the Orioles won the series opener at San Francisco. So I don't know. I'm not on Twitter, so I don't know what the mood on Orioles Twitter is right now. But I would say just don't panic. Um, I know it's easy to panic, especially because this team plays a lot of close games. And I find myself doing it sometimes. But remember, they are 36-21, and 21, second place in the best division in baseball. And they still have a shot at winning that division, despite the Rays getting off to a historic start this season. So I think things are going to be okay. As for Brandon Hyde, you know, we're at the point now where I think you can pick apart Hyde's decision-making a little bit, but I'm not someone who looks at the day-to-day lineups and tries to, you know, analyze why he wants to punt. Um, I'm not interested in that so much. I do think that there's been some things that Hyde has done well this year. I think overall the bullpen management has been okay given that the situation is really less than ideal where you have, you know, Michael Givens hurt coming back, not being very effective, and then going on the IL again. We have not seen Dylan Tate this year. So he's had to kind of mix and match some guys that we weren't anticipating were going to be a big part of this team. And so far, he has done that successfully. If I had to find fault with him. There are times where I think the hook is a little too quick with starting pitchers. I kind of question if the game on Wednesday afternoon against Cleveland would have gone a little bit differently if he had let Keegan Aiken throw another inning or two just to try to keep things close and not blow up the bullpen, which is what happened in that contest. So there are times where I think he does pull the hook a little bit too soon, but I think given what he has to work with, Hyde generally does a good job. And while we're not on the inside, and we can't say with certainty you know, what his leadership style is. We do know from watching the Orioles that these guys play hard. That it was true in 2019 when they were one of the worst teams in baseball. It's true in 2023 when they're competing for a playoff spot, and you've got a mixture of younger guys, established major leaguers, and some guys who really developed under Brandon Hyde that are now settling in and becoming quality everyday major leaguers. Players like Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, they're still playing hard for him. So that's something I give Hyde a lot of credit for. He's always willing to go to bat for his guys. So overall, I'm satisfied with Brandon Hyde as the Orioles manager. Go to this question now on Twitter from at the Italiano 24. Are there any pitchers in the system who you think are legitimate options to be called up and fill a permanent role in the Major League bullpen in the very near future. The pit, the first name that comes to mind is a guy who's technically not a prospect anymore. That's Eduard Bizzardo. Um, Bizzardo, 27 years old, has had Major League time uh, with Boston in the past. He came over the Orioles um, in the offseason and was excellent in spring training for them and so far has gotten off to a really good start in Norfolk. Through 22 and a third innings pits, he struck out 24 batters, walked six, and has a 2-4-2 ERA. He could be another right-handed option that the Orioles turn to at some point, especially if they know that they're not going to have Michael Givens for Dylan or Dylan Tate for long stretches of this year. And he's a guy who's deserving of a promotion at this point. I would be happy to see him get that opportunity to come up to Baltimore and see if whatever is working for him down at AAA is a sign of him making some adjustments that are going to allow him to be a little bit more successful going forward at the major league level. For guys that are prospect eligible, I would keep my eye on Noah DeNoyer and Ryan Watson. 
Um, both could fit in as bulk inning guys. DeNoyer is already on the 40-man roster. Watson will be Rule 5 eligible this offseason. So if the Orioles know that they're going to protect him with that spot, they could go ahead and just decide to add him to the 40-man roster before this season is over, especially if they find themselves at a point, and let's face it, we know they're going to find themselves at this point, where they need somebody to make a spot starter. They need to bring somebody up for a long stretch to be able to come out of the bullpen and give them more than three outs. Watson and DeNoyer fit that mold. When you look at their numbers this year in Norfolk, I know that the baseline stats don't jump out, but Watson has done a better job of missing bats at AAA this season than he did at the tail end of his stint there last year. And in fact, in his outing earlier this week, he got seven strikeouts, which is the most he has had in any AAA appearance. DeNoyer, meanwhile, his season, I don't know quite what to make of it so far. His strikeout per nine innings are pretty good, but his walks are up. And it seems like he's just giving up more hard contact than what he did last year, which is interesting because his ground ball rate is actually up pretty significantly from where it was at Bowie last year. 35.7% with the Bay Sox compared to 48.8% with the Tides this year. Yet his line drive rate has ticked up a little bit and his infield fly ball rate is way down. He had a 20% infield fly ball rate with the Bay Sox last year. That number's at just 12.5% with the Tides this year. He's also one of those guys who's had, you know, these kind of pockets of outings where he can be really good. And then he'll have a few where he gives up, you know, two or three runs in just a couple of innings of work. And all of a sudden, his numbers look a lot worse. Hopefully, you can look at the fact that he is getting strikeouts and see that as a sign that he can get a little bit better as he settles in at AAA. Because he's someone that... Even if he needs a little bit more development time this year, you're not necessarily looking at him as a long-term, as an option for long stretches of time this season. Could still give you some innings later this year and maybe fit in as a bullpen piece next year. Go to a similar question here from Scott in our Patreon community who wants to know, of the AAA arms we have in the system, which do you think the organization sees as rotation, bullpen, or organizational type pieces, guys that might move up and down and be called up for spot starts, but that's about it. And for the first two, what are the ETAs? Well, Grayson Rodriguez is in Norfolk right now. We know the Orioles see him as a rotation piece. He's not prospect eligible, but he's clearly a guy that still has some development work. We are going to, I feel like we are going to see him again in the major league rotation this year. They just want him to work on certain things and get his confidence back up. I think in particular his fastball command is something he needs to improve on before he gets that opportunity. Drew Rahm is someone else that I feel like they're going to try to develop as a starter for as long as they can. He may end up in the bullpen long term, but I would suspect that maybe later this year he gets a couple of spot start opportunities. And if he's, you know, provided that he's not moved in a trade himself, he could be a guy that some teams are looking at. But if he's still around and there's an open rotation spot going into spring training, I could see him being a name they throw out there. Now, beyond that, it starts to get a little bit interesting. D.L. Hall, it looked like a couple of months ago, they were maybe building him up as a starter. Now, though, with sort of this build-up period that he's going through, shorter outings, trying to get his fastball velocity back up, it may make the most sense to just work with him as a reliever and see what you could get because he could be another lefty that gives you good results down the stretch. If you need to go, you know, with someone out of the bullpen who's left-handed, can get strikeouts, hopefully his stuff gets better as the year goes on, 
and you could look at him as a legitimate bullpen option. And then knowing some of the issues he's had with his command, he's never been a guy who's worked deep in the outings. Maybe you just decide to make him a reliever. The Orioles aren't going to say that that's where they are, but I, my sp- hunts, just pure speculation, is that they're a little bit closer to that now than they were in spring training when they were talking about developing him as a starter. Ryan Watson, Noah Denoyer, two guys I just talked about, I think can be balk inning guys, maybe make spot starts here and there and work primarily out of the bullpen. And then your organizational guys, you could put Bruce Zimmerman in that mix because I don't see Zimmerman as part of the long-term plans, but he's someone that can be of use to you. He's certainly effective at AAA, and he can get you the spot start every now and then. He can come up and probably work a five-inning, three-run outing that keeps the Orioles in a game, lets the bullpen take over, and you know they could win that. Um, you could say the same for Spencer Watkins right now. Cole Irvin's kind of the interesting one because we were all counting on him to be a rotation piece. He really struggled at the beginning of the year. He's younger, and he does have two years of team, two or three years of team control remaining beyond this year. So the Orioles do have time to work on him and salvage that trade a little bit. But for right now, I would say they maybe see him as a starter, but if the results don't improve, maybe they either do look at him in the bullpen or start to consider him more of an organizational guy, which would be a disappointment given what the expectations were when they acquired him from the A's. But I feel like we don't have a firm answer on that one just yet. K Swiss on Twitter wants to know, how long does Jorge Mateo hold on to everyday reps at shortstop? We obviously have a log jam in the infield. With Arias back, do you think we mix Gunner in at shortstop again, or do we stick with him splitting time at third? I have been saying all year that as long as the Orioles are contending and as long as Jorge Mateo gives you elite-level defense, he's probably not going anywhere for this year. I still kind of lean that way, but I'm not as firm on it as I was last month because he has struggled so much at the plate. And I feel like in his times in the major leagues, Joey Ortiz has made a really positive impression. He's hitting the ball hard. He plays pretty good defense himself. So some of the concerns that I had that maybe Ortiz would be a step or two behind defensively when he got up to the major leagues, I mean, you have to adjust, might not be valid. He might very well be one of those guys that can come up and play shortstop right away when he's not going to go through that adjustment period. I'm not guaranteeing it, but based on what I've seen from him so far, I feel like it's possible that he could come in and be effective right away. So that does make the lease with Mateo shorter. Now, what could be interesting is if Cedric Mullins is out for a while, do the Orioles start looking at Mateo more as a utility guy because of what his speed could give them in the outfield? At that rate, that's going to open up reps at shortstop for Henderson, possibly Joey Ortiz. And if they you know, bring Jordan Westberg up and they don't have Ortiz there, maybe Westberg is part of the mix at shortstop. I don't see that as an ideal situation, but it still could come up. So I'm not going to give up on Mateo completely yet, but I'm not as firm in the opinion that I had earlier this year that the job will be his for this year and that next year will be when they make the decision on whether to try to trade him or move him into a utility role and give that job to someone else. My co-host Bob Phelan uh, wants me to give a prediction for the Orioles record in the month of June. So when this question came through, it was actually before the Orioles won Friday's opener at San Francisco. 
what I came up with at that point and what I will stick to is a 14-10 and 10 record in the month of June. I had the Orioles losing the series at San Francisco, but with the series opener coming down as a victory, maybe they do pull out two out of three there. We'll talk more about the Brewers and Royals series in a moment, but I feel like those are two that match up well for the Orioles. After that, they have three in a row at Toronto, and then they go right to Wrigley to face the Cubs. This is not an ideal stretch of the Orioles' schedule because we know those Toronto series are always competitive. It comes down really to you know, the lineups and who can put up the most runs, which team's bullpen does the better job of preserving the leads late in games. Those tend to be slugfests, and then you have to turn around after a Thursday matinee at Camden Yards, go to Chicago, and then play three straight day games starting on Friday. So if the Orioles can come out of that stretch, which is kind of a physically grueling point of their schedule, I'll feel pretty good about where they stand. A couple of advantages for them in June as compared to May. It's a weaker schedule than what they had in May. And they also have a nice mixture of off days. They'll have an off day between San Francisco and Milwaukee. They'll have an off day after the Royals at home and then before beginning a home series at Toronto. They'll have off days on either end of the two-game series down at Tropicana Field. And then again, a mid-homestand off day later in the month when the Reds come in and then the Twins come in behind them to end June. So I kind of like the off days being mixed in the way they are. I think this is a winnable schedule for the Orioles. So... I will go with 14-10 and 10 over the months of June. We'll wrap things up with this question from David Adams, who wants a preview of the Orioles' upcoming series against the Brewers and the Royals. The Orioles will head to American Family Field in Milwaukee to face the Brewers in a three-game set starting on Tuesday, while the Royals will travel to Baltimore over the weekend. Starting with things off the Brewers, their lineup this season has been kind of interesting. They can hit for power, but struggle in a lot of other areas. They've hit 66 home runs as a team, which is exactly the league average in the National League this year. Yet, if you look at their other numbers, they are second to last in the NL with a 694 team OPS. Second to last in OPS plus, which is 88, ahead of only the Rockies. So, the lineup not producing in a lot of areas this year. They're also second to last in batting average at 228 ahead of just the Padres. On the pitching side of things, it looks like the Orioles will face Freddie Peralta on Tuesday, followed by Corbin Burns on Wednesday, and then Colin Ray on Thursday. Burns, his results have been down across the board this year. That doesn't mean he won't go out and pitch really well against the Orioles, but with the performance that he's put up so far this year, that is not as daunting of a matchup as it would have been last year or the year before. Peralta has kind of mixed numbers when you look at his season to this point. 4.62 ERA. He has struck out 61 batters in 60 in the third innings pitched with a walk per nine of 3.7, which is actually his career total. Ray will draw, will throw in the finale. His season so far, decent results for the Brewers. Um, he is 4.89 ERA and 42 in the third innings pitched. Doesn't strike a lot of guys out, just 35 strikeouts in that span against 15 walks. So I think these are pitchers that the Orioles do match up well against. And with that, I see the Orioles taking two out of three in Milwaukee and uh, putting a strong end to the road trip. As for the Royals, they're a really kind of interesting team. The Orioles faced them at the beginning of May. And we saw in that series where they can be a little bit more challenging than what meets the eye. They are one of the worst teams in baseball. They're not going anywhere this year. 
And yet they're capable of putting together these spike nights in the lineup where all of a sudden they'll come out and score a lot of runs. They kind of remind me of the Orioles from 2019 to 2021 in that sense, where they're bad teams that don't have really a lot of long-term building blocks, but they're capable of putting up big runs here and there. You know, Just to give an example, last weekend at Washington, they lost the game 12-10. to 10. Uh, In the series against the Orioles, the final scores were 11-7 Baltimore, 6-0 Kansas City, 13-10 Baltimore. So we know the lineup can be a little bit of a challenge and not one you want to take for granted. I think that was a harder-fought series in Kansas City than what many might have been expecting when the Orioles went in there. So you can't rule out that the Royals make things tough on the Orioles in Baltimore. But with that said, I still think that that's a series the Orioles are going to win. I'm going to wrap things up by actually talking about Gunnar Henderson a little bit. I thought we might get a couple of questions about Henderson this week. We ultimately didn't, so I figured I'd share my thoughts on him here. We're now over two months into his first season in the major leagues, and the results across the board have shown some real flaws. 203 batting average through 188 plate appearances, 716 OPS. These are not the kind of numbers we were expecting from a guy who was going to be a rookie of the year candidate. What's interesting, if you look at his month-to-month splits, in May, he took a step back in his on-base percentage. He had a 348 on-base percentage through his first 23 games of the season between April and March. Now in May, that total went down to 315 over 27 games. He still has a 330 on-base percentage, which is solid, but we did start to see the power come up that month. He was getting a little bit more aggressive at the plate. What I'm thinking and what I'm hoping is that June is going to be the month where it starts to really pull together. We will still see him take good at bats and be patient, but we will also see him attack pitches in the zone a little bit more, which is exactly what he did with that home run against the Giants on Friday night. And if you start getting more production out of Gunnar Henderson, in my mind, that is the equivalent of trading for a bat at the deadline because the Orioles have gotten to this point without Henderson producing anywhere near the results that we expected him to have coming into this year. And if you're going to be able to compete down the stretch and you're going to get through this time period that Cedric Mullins is out, however long that lasts, it's going to depend on guys like Henderson and Ryan Malcastle stepping up with better production. And I think we are going to get that from him down the stretch. Is it going to be enough for him to get back into the rookie of the year race or to be one of the top contenders by season's end? Maybe not. But at this rate, if you can see him overcome the adversity and deliver for the Orioles over the final months of this season, you go ahead and view that as a win, and you can still count on Henderson, I think, to be a quality major leaguer for a very long time and a really crucial piece of the Orioles' window of contention over the next five to six years and hopefully longer. So, Henderson, I feel like he's the breakout is coming. We just got to wait a little bit longer. Hopefully, June is the month where things start to come together for him. And with that, I'll wrap up this Major League Mailbag for this week. Thank you for the excellent questions. As always, Bob, Nick, and I will be back on Monday night with our main show to actually talk a little bit about some promotions that have happened, including Douglas Hodo and Creed Willems going up to Aberdeen. Hopefully, we have a little bit more good news to discuss between now and then, but certainly looking forward to Monday night. So in the meantime, thank you for listening to this Major League Mailbag. 
That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.